0: Hello everybody and welcome back to the Boar Film Podcast. This week we have got Oliver Toms, one of the news editors for the Boar, and we will be discussing uh, history in films and how it's depicted. For Ollie is also a uh, history and politics student, and so I imagine he has a fair few gripes that he wants to get through on this one. So, of course, introducing our guest first. Ollie. what have you been doing, Uh, I mean, in general, with the news section? There's been a lot of stuff coming out, breaking news-wise. You guys are pretty much on it all the time.
1: Uh, How's that going for you? So news has been really busy uh, at the moment, obviously, with the A-levels and then the government U-turn and how universities have been reacting to that. There's been so much uncertainty going on. And we've been finding it that we're writing articles on the Monday and by the Tuesday afternoon the complete opposite is true and they're completely outdated. It's been really fast moving, um, which has been really nice to write about it. But I also do have a lot of sympathy for the people, like the A-level students that it involves. Because I can kind of disconnect myself a bit because I have my place at university, but the uncertainty must be massive for the people that are being affected by it.
0: Uh, absolutely. So um, uh, my heart goes out to them, Really? Uh, it just seems like a not very good situation for pretty much everyone involved. And then the massive U-turn as well has meant that there's like this massive excess of people who've got university spaces and top universities are thinking they might have to defer like a whole bunch of people for next year, which is just going to affect next year as well. So it's it's just not very good all around, even after the U-turn as well. Which is disappointing. Um, did you see the news this morning as well about the Warwick maths? Well, the prospective Warwick maths student coming in to uh, studying after the donation from one Taylor
1: Swift. Yep, that is definitely. I think uh, my co-editor is writing a story on it as we speak. Um, certainly, it's hit the nationals, which is really impressive. Uh, I think the donation was twenty three thousand pound. I think from from Taylor Swift. Well, we believe it's Taylor Swift. She hasn't actually said itself that it was Taylor Swift, but the donation was from Taylor Swift. And if you're going to spend £23,000 on someone, I don't think you're going to pretend to be someone else. Um, so yeah, that's, it's a kind of nice feel-good story uh, amongst it all. There is these kind of little gems of news around that I think you kind of have to attach yourself a little bit in these times of uncertainty.
0: Definitely. Um, the one thing that I will say is I certainly feel sorry for her because a lot of her uni existence is going to be defined on the fact that she was the Taylor Swift girl. And she will probably get sick of the question of, are you the Taylor Swift girl? But um, apart from that, it's really good all rounds for everyone involved.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think uh, whenever she introduces herself, her fun fact for the next 10 years will be... Peyton Taylor Swift donated over £20,000 to me
0: Well she's got the dream of uh, being a mathematician so hopefully a fun fact will I don't know, it could even just be a maths fact Could could be maths related or hopefully it'll be one day that uh, she managed to prove the Riemann hypothesis or something or disprove the Riemann hypothesis yeah. I suppose that's uh, also a possibility
1: mm-hmm. Again, you're talking to a history student here so I yeah. would never consider maths and fun fact <laughs> in the same sentence yeah.
0: Um, sometimes it's quite rare for me to do the same thing with certain parts of maths as well but this is not a maths podcast this is a film podcast so ollie could you please uh, talk about a film that you've watched this week that's unrelated to what we're going to be talking about podcast wise
1: yeah, certainly. So this week, I watched uh, Knives Out for the first time. Um, it was on Amazon Prime, so I thought I'd give it a quick watch. And I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I did like the main character. Uh, the whole idea of the character not being able to lie and literally being sick was quite a really interesting plot device. I quite enjoyed the way they used it. Um, there was They explored some nice ideas with it. Daniel Craig's accent was massively jarring. Very um, suspect, yes. Yeah, it was, I'd rather him kept the British accent rather than just kind of put on this really forced, like, southern accent. And it just, I don't know, it didn't work for me. I was in, there was a really great dialogue in it and he delivered the lines well, but I just couldn't concentrate on it because I was just so <laughs> off-put by the accent. Um, but yeah, no, Some really interesting, I really like the way they kind of, just shown this rich family that was completely dysfunctional, and the perfect bit as well was that they acted like they were in this huge dynasty, but then they reveal that the house was bought in the 80s, and it's not this kind of the succession of this long heirloom at all. Um, so yeah, and the the ending was was good as well. I I thought they revealed it too early, and then it's a twist, and it definitely it was. I felt uh, it was a good feeling. Like I didn't feel like I needed more of the film. It ended at the right time and was a good kind of all around package.
0: Yeah. Um, I remember when I watched it, so I watched it at the student cinema, um, uh, when my brother visited, and he—he's not as big a fan of it as I was, and I'm not much of a fan of it in the first place. Um, I think it's—it it's, taught me kind of one thing uh, with Ryan Johnson, the director, and that I should just never rewatch Looper because I enjoyed Looper, and I feel like if I rewatched it, I just wouldn't enjoy it because Ryan's kind of—I um, think he tries to be too clever at certain times with it um i i fully i fully get people saying like it's a really entertaining film because for the most part yeah it is the thing that really annoys me with the film is i think the ending kind of betrays the overall themes of the film because um instead of it being like uh look at these look at this kind of uh well this family that thinks it's a dynasty as you said and look just how it's kind of a really interesting parallel that's drawn because everyone's just saying um ransom chris evans's character is the nasty one but then none of them get the money and they're all just really nasty to each other and to the woman because they want the money um which yeah. i thought i thought was very clever um but then ransom's the guy who did it all along and daniel craig says at the end that um uh, the the main woman who's the name of the character i can't remember um uh, she'll 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 give the money to the family anyway out of the kindness of her heart and it's just like this isn't this kind of betraying what you're trying to say about these families just all kind of being um not very nice when suddenly a load of money is then put on the table i thought that yeah i thought it was a really good kind of critique of like what Middle-class families can be like um, until that the ending just completely ruined that for me, and I thought, yeah, no, I yeah. definitely
1: understand that, and I think there's also and this is a bit of a kind of shot in the dark, but I think there's parallels with Inspector Calls, the uh, the 50s play, because um, it kind of shows this crime that wasn't committed or in the way that they thought it was, and it kind of the family tears itself apart, and yeah, I could definitely understand that if he kind of played on that a bit more. There could have been a really unique ending to the film, but instead it just kind of takes a kind of right turn at the end, just a kind of a safe ending, yeah. which is kind of satisfying for the average viewer. But I can, it kind of prevents it from becoming this really unique film, and instead is going to be the Daniel Craig detective film.
0: Yeah, I look if it had the ending of. Um... Charles Ransom wasn't the one who did it, it was someone else. Um, as long as that wasn't just like pulled out of nowhere in a bit of a deus ex machina. And, or, or even if it was just accidental fully in the first place, like um, that was the, the whole thing. It was just a completely accidental um, death because of an overdose of um, the, the morphine or whichever drug it was on, the, um, on Christopher Plummer's character, kind of the patriarch of the family. I thought that would have been, you know, a lot cleverer because it, it then be, it's, it's then a film about how the, this family just kind of eats itself up um, when money's on the table. And I think it's kind of, it also shows, um, especially when they were talking about internet culture in places with like, I don't know, calling them libtards or, uh, or I can't remember if they used that term, but it's effectively words to that effect um, and a bunch of alt-right accusations as well.
1: Oh yeah, um, with the
0: sixteen-year-old. Yeah. yeah, with the kids, and then like, uh, then there's some like vague political commentary there, which um, doesn't really go anywhere. But I think if it, you know, I think it would be kind of this really interesting exploration of these people are going to pretend they care about these issues, um, but then suddenly you see them just be so ravenous and money hungry at like kind of the slightest inconvenience to them as well. And these are people who've just um, done nothing to earn what they had. So I think the film would have been a much more interesting exploration had it gone that direction. Uh, And to be fair as well, the cast is really good and the performances given all around are really good. I mean, you've got big names like, uh, as well as Daniel Craig, you've got Chris Evans, Tony Collette, Michael Shannon, um, who who are all given their A game as well. And they're all really, really good actors and actresses
1: in there so yeah yeah what i liked as well is that uh, all the characters in the family were believable like they i know they were quite tropey but they're still they weren't so stereotyped that they were completely uh unbelievable and it was quite nice that kind of midway through the film when the wheels exposed and none of them are getting the money that you kind of see that the I can't remember the, the name of the character but the girl who's doing the women's studies um, post like masters and the alt-right 16 year old both end up attacking the um, nurse and it kind of brings them together and it shows that actually the real vice for them was that they wanted the money and it was all just about the money yeah. but then again it kind of derails itself with the ending so I think it it could have had space to explore these themes a bit more and it it did, but maybe it leaves you a bit wanting.
0: Yeah, um, that's certainly how I felt uh, coming out of it. Is is when you know I thought it was quite clever. Like some of the humour didn't land with me either. Like CSI KFC. I suppose one for the fact that I just didn't know what a Kentucky accent was, but they kept joking about it so much that I just assumed it was what Daniel Craig had. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, and then I I think the film had kind of lost me at that point where I'd seen where it was going and then suddenly jokes about donut shaped holes in donut shaped holes were just being made and I was just like I I really can't be bothered with
1: this. Yeah. And some really he felt a bit forced. Yeah,
0: the, and then the ending just
1: really like I, uh, then the ending just kind of ruined it for me. But um yeah. Yeah, no, um but I, I'm kinda of glad I watched it. Um but I it's not a re I don't think it's got much rewatch value to it. Yeah, I think you're right. Um,
0: I, I've not rewatched it, but I, I don't see any real reason to go and do so. I think, you know, I remembered the good parts of it with its cast and everything just now, but then um, I reminded myself, so why did I not like it in the cin- Oh yeah, the ending
1: and also some of the humour as well. Yeah, and I've it's it. it's just like, I think you'll reach a point in the rewatch where it just, it it peaks in the middle of the film and it just takes the wrong turn to become something really defining all of the setup
0: with the characters is really really good it's really really good and all of the interview stuff as well yeah when the characters themselves are kind of being showcased and introduced and it's kind of a good framing device narratively for um, talk like introducing each of the characters to us I I mean it could seem a bit forceful in the way we're kind of literally being told from another family like family members perspective what the, what the characters are like but uh, I thought it was a good kind of framing device there
1: yeah yeah, the setup was, was really nice and it was like you had it set all these inter-family rivalries and I just feel like they weren't exploited as much as they could be or he didn't play along enough with the idea that they were united by the want of money it mm. just kind of ended up being with this middle ground and then the whole oh it turns out Ransom the bad guy was the bad guy all along was just a bit unsatisfying
0: definitely yeah um yeah i suppose that's kind of that's kind of all we have to say i suppose then on on knives out a film i watched this week um i've i've not been watching much this week i must confess i watched so much last week in preparation for like everyone's top tens i just found as many of them as i could to just clear them off um but uh, this week, um, I've, I've, like, I've had other things to do. I've been putting the finishing touches on a, uh, a lovely maths project that should be, I don't know, hopefully completed at some point. Um, but yeah, uh, and so I've not been watching much. The only two films I've watched are Riot Club and Netflix's Project Power because my friends persuaded me to go into a Netflix party with them and watch it. Um, the Riot Club is something that I'd say, if you live in England, Uh, you just definitely need to watch it because it's got a lot of commentary on the Bullington club uh, and the Bullington club um, is the, well, for those who don't know, it's the group of people, group of students in Oxford who are just really rich. And the whole idea of the society is to um, make sure that uh, its members do well in the future. Right. So it's a lot of cronyism going on there. um, And yeah they they just there's some there's some quite raucous behavior from some very rich individuals and the riot club is based off of the Bullingdon club and stories from the Bullingdon club david cameron and boris johnson were both in the Bullingdon club so it's quite clear its influences uh for for them you know both being uh uk prime ministers and it's where the whole story about david cameron kind of sticking um his his nether region into the mouth of a pig comes from. And it would not surprise me if that was true, knowing what the Bullington Club are like. So, yeah, um, it's based off a play which you can kind of tell because a lot of it takes place in like one location. It's really well done, I think, once the film kind of sets off. The thing that I had to kind of um, mentally prepare myself for, though, is that everyone just kind of speaks like the most unlikable person you've ever met in your life. And you've got to just realise that that's going to be the case for the whole film. And although that can make you just sit there and in your head just think like the worst uh, swear words that come to mind about a certain individual, um, at the same time, that's kind of, it just works for the effect of the film. I think for the fact that I was just so... Just sat there in absolute fury because of what was going on. Uh, I think it, it 's clear that the film managed to move me. Uh, some of the dialogue 's a bit off, but apart from that yeah it 's all good. Um, have you
1: seen it i haven 't I haven't actually, but I will definitely have a look. I have heard about it, and obviously, as you know politics being half my degree. Uh, the Bullington Club is something that I'm very aware of, so it'll be nice to see how it's presented. But I could definitely see if they all adopt that very kind of posh accent, but like the whole, oh yeah, so I'm Hamish sort of yes. way. It can get a bit jarring, but uh, I'm, I'm sure it'd be worth putting up for
0: uh yeah it is worth putting up for like it is a struggle it is a struggle mainly because like when you realize it's based off of the bullington club well you've got that in the back of your mind the whole time and that just makes the whole proceedings really depressing um but yeah it's it's really it's really quite an effective film um so yeah uh well well done to it to be fair uh project power on the other hand is not a very effective film um it's quite it's, it's quite dreadful um I uh, so the thing that really struck me about Project Power, um, this is the one on Netflix that you're not gonna watch, Ollie, okay? Um yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I when you said
1: Netflix party on Netflix, I hadn't heard about it. I was like, yeah, I, think I won't be watching this. Yeah, it's a Netflix
0: original that came out in the light like, the last week. Uh, it's just kind of tragic. Um so it's about the 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 idea of it is like there are these pills which you take and then you get superpower for five minutes. And the issue with it was was like it was so kind of unfocused and quite cluttered as a script and the story is kind of fairly by the numbers as well the thing I really thought was quite laughable was the fact that randomly in the middle of the film it starts to have this commentary on on um on black people in society and how uh they're they're really held down by the system in a conversation that jamie fox's character and a character named robin who to be fair to the, the actress it was this like child actress right to be fair to that actress she gave like the only good performance in the film so she should be credited uh, i I'm, I'm sorry that your breakout role was project power um from the bottom of my heart uh, everyone else kind of felt like they just weren't interested um it, i suppose that's kind of the thing with netflix original films is you kind of get given money to, to make a film and get given your budget, and you just have to return with something for Netflix because the the amount of stuff people will just like lap up on Netflix, no matter how yeah. bad it is, is, quite substan- is is quite worrying to be honest with you um, yeah oh, I
1: think all you need really is a good kind of uh, idea, which is the five minute superpower yeah. slap on a kind of a very average plot, some social commentary which seems to be. On, on brand and in there and then you've got something that basically people will watch and not yeah. really pay too much attention to because I, I suppose you know if, if you're watching a two hour Netflix film and you don't enjoy it you're not going to feel too hard done by it because you can go and watch there's you know some good films on Netflix from like old blockbusters but you're not like you've gone and paid eight pounds and gone and watch it in the cinema and feel like you need to get your money's worth you can have something that kind of passes the time and feel like oh it's, it's all right
0: yeah, uh yeah, I think you're completely right and I think you don't you don't even need to market it particularly well. You just need to have like some big name actors involved. So that's why Adam Sandler's stuff is still like his net worth is something like 50 mil um nearing that because like he's signed 20 million dollar deals with Netflix for four films. He like he he just doesn't need to put any effort into the Netflix films. I mean, they've already bought them. People are going to watch them because he's in it. Uh, me included i can't wait for his film to come out at halloween (laughs) um and, and and yeah like it just kind of goes from there the thing was with the kind of really weird social commentary though was it yeah so after well even before that happens with the oh black people are really put down by society this is a film that's directed by a white man written by a white man and what they've depicted black people do so far is that that young black girl, she's really into rapping, and um, uh, when she's dealing drugs, she she deals them in the chicken shop, um, which I thought both of those as kind of you know if you're going to if you're going to make commentary about how black people are put down in, by society, I think you're kind of not really helping as well when suddenly you just kind of then characterize the black characters yeah. by mainly using stereotypes. Instead. I think as well. A oh, she doesn't with... have
1: a father as well. That's another one. Oh, oh yeah. me. Yeah. I think a problem as well is having this kind of every black character has this old, oh, this random bit of social commentary. I mean, there's some really good films that really show the social commentary well, and they're designed and they're, you know, they're always directed by or have a, a majority black or ethnic minority cast that kind of know the problems and not this kind of forced in. And I think it almost, it's, I just think it's almost stereotyping where you have to have a black character that at one point will start spouting some social commentary. If your film's not based on that and you're not going to bring the theme up in a a kind of very nuanced way that fits well, if you just got to kind of almost ram it in, it kind of does it a disservice Yeah, especially when it's just kind of
0: like a throwaway line like that, where it's kind of a throwaway scene, where it's mainly just for the purpose of the two characters bonding more than anything else. It just seems so, like, forced. And you just sat there like, why did you even bother?
1: You're commodifying something that should never be commodified, essentially.
0: Definitely. Um, Yeah, and I can't really think of a better way to transition to our actual main theme for today, um, being... Uh, hi- historical representation in films and how history is represented. So what we've got here is we've got four kind of categories of films that we want to discuss in terms of how they display history. Uh, we've got World War One, World War II, slavery and biopics, because as time periods go, those are kind of four really popular ones throughout film history. Slavery more and more recently, um, but the other three um, have been really kind of big mainstays in Hollywood with even 1917 winning best film last year at the BAFTAs being a World War I film. So we wanted to discuss to what extent should we be uh, making entertainment of injustices uh, of the past? To what extent as well um, does this matter? Uh, because certainly there are a lot of these um, historical films that are really, really entertaining as well and certainly have their place in film history. So that's what we're going to discuss today. So, Ollie, do you have any... If we start with World War I, um do you have any kind of World War I films? What would you say is your favourite, if, if we had um, to choose one?
1: I think, to be honest, I, I know it's very classic. It has quite recently. 1917 is a, a really good depiction of the First World War. And I think it's through the whole one-shot take. Uh, the way that the film is filmed shows this really good way of showing the whole picture of the Western Front and not just that one classic, over. Oh, let's go over the top, like seeing a version of the Somme that is in pretty much every other World War I film. And it incorporates the kind of regular life on the front when that, the opening scenes where he um, the two soldiers walk through and you kind of see this kind of moving from a quiet field to when they get to the front line and just seeing how it changes and the characters they meet, they slowly become more and more tense as you get to the front line. And then you go, oh, yeah, the lieutenant, oh, he's not here. He was killed like a week ago. And you just see this kind of breakdown in command. And then what I really was probably enjoy isn't the best word, but the way it just showed how it, it commodified people's lives that they, when he's in the river and he just comes across these kind of 20, 30 dead bodies just shows how the First World War commodified the loss of life in this way. It just became a number that no longer was it, oh my God, it's someone who's lost their life. It's just, oh, it's an obstacle. There's 20 bodies in the way as if it was a tree trunk.
0: Yeah, Um I think that's a, a, like a really good point to make in terms of, um, well, I suppose 1917's whole thing was the one-shot-take thing, and that's the thing that took up the majority of the marketing, which, to be honest, I think it, it kind of annoyed me in a way because when I saw it, there's one cut where it literally just cuts to black. So to say that it's all in one take is a bit misleading. If you said all in two takes, then, then I'd be fine with that because cutting to black is just really cheating. When it, comes to, uh, when it comes to claiming that you're doing a one-take yeah. film.
1: There's definitely some, like the explosion scene uh, when they're in the tunnels, which you're like, yeah, this yes. is kind of like, yeah, we know you've changed the cut. But I think it was, I would rather they didn't rely so much on it being, oh, look at this for one sort of take, but instead the way that they managed to show the whole war within just the experiences of these two soldiers over a couple of days that's something I'd never really thought about with nineteen seventeen
0: to be honest with you um the thing the thing for it like i I thought it was good I didn't think it was best picture winning worthy um so I think a lot of the issues for me kind of stem from everything around the uh everything around the one shot take stuff I think the one shot take stuff itself and the cinematography is really good but I think the thing is, it, it, they so heavily marketed it off of that. And to me, it kind of, yeah. I, that, I think it kind of showed because that was kind of the only thing that I thought was really going for it. I, think, I thought the characters were kind of by the numbers and the dialogue wasn't fantastic. The music as well was really kind of distracting. I yeah, the, the, the
1: music wasn't great, which is actually something that's kind of backing the trend. Um... For more recently, I think, as we'll come on to it, especially when we go gone to World War II, how important music is for historical numbers. So for historical films, they have to have these kind of... You can experiment more with older kind of orchestral pieces. And I think it quite it becomes quite important because a lot of these war films rely heavily on the emotion of the, of the viewer as well as the emotion of the character that's shown. Yeah. But I don't think it was... As a film, it wasn't the best one. But as a rendition of the Western Front, it was a slightly different and enjoyable take.
0: Yeah, I, yeah um, I never really thought of it as kind of a historical piece. So that's actually a really interesting way of looking at it. And I suppose from that perspective, I can certainly understand why it's very effective. Um, I suppose the thing that I think should be made clear now is I think my number one criticism of historical films in general... Is usually that I think they take for granted too much that the audience is going to be on side. Um, for example, um, I suppose when we talk about slavery, we'll talk about Lincoln. I'll, I'll just, I'll say my other problems with Lincoln there. But yeah. um, I think that it, it really relies on us loving Abraham Lincoln, which being from the UK, I don't. Um, I know, yeah. I know that, the Thirteenth Amendment was a massive thing and a very good thing because it ended slavery. But I think the fact that the kind of uh, the characters aren't really um, developed as much as they should be, maybe in a normal film, I understand that that kind of compromises it has to be there. But um, yeah, I think that kind of can let historical films down. I think the same might be said about 1917 of us like really loving kind of the British side. But I yeah. think especially in, I suppose, World War I, if we get more into the actual uh, history and politics of it, which is, um, I suppose, your domain. So <laughs> I, hope, I hope you agree with me on this. Um, it, it feels very much like since the centenary happened, World War I uh, education has kind of changed. Um, and I suppose the general view on World War I has changed from... Uh, England good Germans bad to um, everyone everyone good in terms of soldiers very tragic but the generals who just use these tactics of' will just send loads of flipping soldiers to, to die uh, due to machine gun fire they were certainly very bad and probably yeah. and probably were the murderers themselves
1: yeah I think the big problem with world war one is it is overshadowed by world war two and world war two is a completely different kettle of fish where it's clearly one side is far, far worse than the other. But with world war one, you don't have these, you know, you don't have the Holocaust. You don't have these, you know, these political ideologies of fascism and and communism really battling it out. Instead, it's a kind of tragedy of the modern period is roughly what I think people see it as these days is this kind of, the The end of what they call the long nineteenth century, which is from basically the French Revolution up to nineteen fourteen, where you've had all these industrializations and all the changes that that's brought together, it's all brought into the boiling pot and it boils over, and you just have millions die. And I think there needs to be a kind of heavily anti-war message for World War One because what were they really fighting for?
0: Yeah, I think. I I definitely agree. I suppose making heroes in World War One is exceptionally difficult, but saying that I'd love to hear what you have to say about Hacksaw Rich, because of the fact that um, that obviously is about um, someone who was a conscientious objector uh, and saved 75 lives just by um, being, uh, well, without ever shooting a gun, um, just by kind of being a, a, a medic. Um, so what would, do you think that nece- um, kind of has that anti-war message involved and maybe is um, good at kind of depicting uh, a heroic nature to someone even within World War One? I? I think,
1: yeah, Hacksaw Ridge, I mean, I was a bit nervous when I went to watch it, the plan of, oh, this hero. And I did read up on the guy. He actually did more than the film shows. But in the end... I think you're still cheering on the other Americans around him who are killing the Japanese because the Japanese are um, killing like the, they were targeting medics and the such like. So I actually think is the more recent war films. I think one of the best anti-war ones for me I found was Dunkirk. Um, And I think it's because the one reason I really liked it was that you never really saw the Germans. You never saw the enemy. So it wasn't like it was someone else. There's a bad guy shooting you. It was You almost felt like they were being attacked by the environment, this kind of concept of war itself. It's not a bit abstract, but when you don't have a bad guy that's shown, you kind of see, well, what's the point of it? What are they doing? And the whole point is they just want to get home. Because there's a war going on, you see these kind of loss of life.
0: Yeah, uh, Dunkirk as well. I remember the, um, the one really effective bit with it is when the soldiers are all in the boat together and suddenly bullet holes suddenly come through the boat. Um, that, as a sequence, was really, really well done. And so is kind of it in, in general. Um, it There's quite a bit of intensity to be had just from the general kind of chasing aspects of Dunkirk. And I suppose from here, it's kind of, um, it's a good way for us to transition to World War Two as well. Um, and I suppose with World War Two films, there are so many kind of different aspects to it. You've got people fighting like in Saving Private Ryan and Dunkirk, but you've also got the political nature of it um, as seen in Darkest Hour. And you've also got the, the Holocaust aspects of it, which has been explored most famously, I suppose, in Schindler's List. Um, but I think special mention should probably go to Jojo Rabbit as well for kind of its alternative take on things.
1: Yeah, I... Um... I haven't actually got got watched JoJo Rabbit yet, but it's I think I appreciate these kind of different takes on the history. And I think Schindler's List and to a lesser extent the pianist, they've done that really hard-hitting emotional kind of this is what the Holocaust was. Um and I think that's very important that those films conveyed it in that way because I think you read about it and you know, six million, that's just a number. But like you you don't... It's really hard to picture the cruelty of this kind of mass genocide. But then you watch The Pianist and Schindler's List, which may not be 100% historic, historically accurate, but it's historically accurate on the extent of the violence that Jewish people and other minorities that were targeted as part of the Holocaust um, were received. And I think... It's, it's a very difficult subject. I think the approaching the Holocaust has more in kin to, uh, in historically speaking, the way that the slavery should be approached because it's this kind of mass violence that's systemic at the time. And I think it's, it needs a more delicate touch than traditional war films do. So I think it is, it's a harder task for a director to come and, and shoot a Holocaust film. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Yeah, um,
0: I think there's, um, it's, it's more difficult in that sense. I suppose it's also kind of easier in another sense in terms of historical context, because I think universally, um, well, almost universally, everyone understands that uh, Hitler was completely wrong in, in what he did. And I think that's putting it very mildly. Um, and it's just an absolutely abhorrent thing to happen. So I suppose it's easier um, for, for that extent, and I think that's kind of the one historical genre where I think you don't have to do as much to get your audience on side and caring about um, your characters, because if they're fighting the Nazis, then it's kind of self-explanatory, right? Um, the Nazis yeah. were just really awful uh, individuals with the Holocaust and everything, their rampant antisemitism and racism and everything else with their eugenics policies, right? Um, one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one film that I'll just mention, but I won't go into because um, because I've already talked about it in another episode. Uh, so when I had Max McMillan on, we talked about Come and See, um, which is a it's a Belarusian film about the Nazi atrocities in Belarus, which I suppose, um, uh, interestingly, those are not going to be as well known. But I thought it was really interesting to see kind of the atrocities that Nazi soldiers themselves were doing instead of just um, Auschwitz guards or um, in Saving Private Ryan. Right. You just kind of see Nazi soldiers fighting. Um, you never really kind of get the this sense of the atrocities that were being caused there. So uh, I think. Come and See does a really good job of kind of documenting that, and um, I'd recommend people watching it. You can get a free trial for the Criterion Channel, and uh, and watch it, watch it on that, and then yeah, and then listen to the episode where me and Max talk about it as well.
1: Yeah, I think speaking about the Eastern Front, it's definitely an area of World War Two that could really do with some good films. I haven't actually watched the Come and See, but after hearing about it, I definitely will watch it because there's a the eastern fighting on the eastern front was far different to the west it was very barbaric i think prisoners of war survival rates on both sides were below 50 percent there was like regular mass executions by both the soviets and the germans so i think watch a, a good rendition of just how horrible the war is on that side would be really interesting because so far there hasn't really been that film produced i think a shout out goes out to the German the nineteen ninety Stalingrad film, which was really good. Kind of showed um the atrocities of the being fought there. I need and then to you watch ha- that,
0: yeah, because Stalingrad I think is just such I think as out of like out of any kind of battle in history, I think Stalingrad is really up there as um one of the places you just never want to be. Um, you'd never want to be in that battle with, I think, a life expectancy for soldiers of about 23 hours.
1: Yeah, it was, I mean, the numbers that were lost in Stalingrad and the destruction is something that I don't think, as a nation, we can understand, because it's never happened to us, really. Even the, you know, the worst hit areas of the Blitz, such as the Coventry bombing, that was incomparable to the, the level of destruction and the amount of lives lost in Stalingrad. And then you have Enemy at the Gates produced, which is just terrible. It's just this kind of, oh, it's a sniper film, and it's so just typical of Hollywood renditions of World War II. And it and that's the people's go-to understanding of Stalingrad. And it's, it doesn't do the same emotional service as um, star, the Stalingrad 1990 film does. So it, it, there is still... A lot of World War II films produced fairly recently, which have this really poor Hollywood trope. I think I have to just mention it now. The uh, Pearl Harbor film, probably the worst (laughs) World War II film produced in the last 20 years. Just for how, I mean, first, it's completely historically inaccurate. And how they could have, you know taken a really interesting take on the surprise attack and they just made a love story really and yeah. it just no one was interested in it and there was some there was heroics produced by like several different members of the us military forces on Pearl harbor and they instead cut those characters and re- replaced them with lover boy ben affleck and it's just yes
0: Definitely. Um, I've I've not seen Pearl Harbor, but I think from what you've just said, it's not one that I'll be seeking out to watch.
1: Yeah. I think um, there's also the, the kind of Midway was released recently and the, it's really hard to get a good airplane World War II film that isn't just a CGI fest with characters that you can kind of connect with. It's really hard to show war through that way. And they all end up being averaged at, average at best. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a f- another film, I can't remember the, the name, it's like Red something, and it, it's basically about this black squadron in France, and that's probably the best aircraft film there has been. But that's because it deals with um, racial discrimination in the US Armed Forces. And you find yourself more attached to that plot than the actual aircraft fighting scenes themselves. Um, yeah. Do you have anything
0: briefly that you kind of want to mention about kind of the Vietnam War? Um, Because that's something that uh, I've just realized that we kind of left off our list of things to discuss and uh, films that we didn't mention when we were planning this. Um, But that as a historical period, I suppose, do you think it's kind of similar to World War One that we all kind of accept at this point that the Vietnam War was just sending a bunch of young people to die more than anything else? But or do you think it kind of maybe adds even this kind of slightly colonial element to it where we're just going into this other country um, across like halfway across the world just so we can kind of ruin them just like, you know, uh, for some. Yeah, just to make our benefactors richer, effectively, like we're dying just to make these people richer. I suppose Afghanistan
1: and Iraq films. Do you think they do the same thing? I think is actually a really interesting uh, type of film because a lot of them were produced, I mean, some of them at nearly the exact same time as the war itself or very soon after. And they had a very anti... A lot of them have a very anti-war message for Metal Jacket. A lot of them show kind of the cruelty of war. And it's probably one of the few t- uh, periods that didn't have this kind of... Initially, after the war, this kind of look at our brave heroic soldiers fighting a, a nasty evil enemy that actually I think Afghanistan films, there's a lot of them at the moment around, that they're kind of B-rated flicks on Netflix, and it's always a heroic American special service. I mean, American Sniper is probably the, the biggest one, um, and it, they're just a bit too one-sided. And I think the Vietnam films are quite interesting because you don't really get them anymore, but they all do show the suffering of war but perhaps from a more emotional point of view, because it was so entrenched in living memory at the time. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think so Zero Dark Thirty as well is the
0: the film. I think it's kind of the whole hunt for Bin Laden um, film in, in that, which is another, it's not as much a war film as it seems maybe a spy film. Uh, and I suppose The Hurt Locker, which recently won Best Picture. I say recently, it was like 15 years ago. Which, <laughs> um, I think it's, it's it's the more I grow up, the more my sense of time just gets really warped. Um, it's it's where people are telling me events that happened like five or six years ago, and I was just like, well, they felt like they happened yesterday. Yeah, like, it's, it's a classic.
1: Like, it's, oh, that film's just come out. I should watch it. And it's like yeah. oh, it's actually been out six years now. Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh. <laughs>
0: for real yeah that's that's the one that kind of hits most um i think what hit most was um when i watched rise of the planet of the apes last week and i remember being 11 and wanting to go see it at the cinema but my mom just, <laughs> just not letting me i was just like wow that was nine years ago <laughs> yes <Yeah>, <laughs> that, that was one that really hit um but yeah moving on um slavery that, that big topic. Um, I suppose we may as well uh, say to get this one elephant out of the room in terms of slavery and colonialism and alternate history is that Hamilton has already been discussed on the podcast back in episode nine. So if you want a in-depth discussion on that, I would recommend going there. But that definitely does warrant a mention as alternate history because of how radically it changes things.
1: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, slavery is... Obviously, such a huge topic. um, And it hasn't really been dealt that sensitively by films up until the last decade or so. I mean, there's tons of films which completely whitewash um, notions of slavery and they kind of make it seem like they kind of. A lot of them show slavery is basically just poorly paid farm work when it was far, far more than that. And then you get 12 Years a Slave, which is it it shows slavery in a very difficult manner but i think you're supposed to be uncomfortable watching it really it's so painful um, to watch yeah. it's really painful to watch
0: and i think steve Steve McQueen, who directed, it, just deserves a special shout out for his work in general, because um, I've not seen Widows, but the three of his films, so I've seen three of the four of them, Shame, Hunger and 12 Years a Slave are all absolutely brilliant in terms of how evocative they are. And yeah. the way in 12 Years a Slave that he lets certain shots hang, like when, uh, is the main character called Solomon? Am I right? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. so when, when Solomon's being, he's got his hands tied up and he's just being hung up by the tree. That's really disgusting. Um, Paul Darno's character as well, just like the absolute bullying that comes from him. Um, that, it just It's so, so horrific to watch. The one criticism I have is kind of, I suppose it's the real story, but the ending of it when Brad Pitt's just kind of like, oh yeah, don't worry, mate, I'll get you free, just feels a little bit Yeah, yeah, it feels a little bit weird, like a little bit anticlimactic in a way. And then he's reunited with his family, and then that that's also really powerful. Um, But uh, apart from that, the rest of the film is just incredible. It's just really, really, really good. I think
1: it's so important that that film was created in for how It kind of creates the baseline of you know we can't you can't avoid the topic of slavery when addressing films of that period even if the films aren't related as such and have to be focused on slavery that slavery was such an important part of um, um, like southern america's um economy and just daily life that you have to show it faithfully and kind of not showing it faithfully pretending it didn't happen is in some ways ignoring the history and and not refusing to move on from it really and i you don't want. I'm suspicious of anyone that says that Twelve Years of Slave is their favourite film. It's the sort <laughs> of, basically, it shouldn't be anyone's favourite film. It's painful, but you want it to be like it. Kind of, it gives the, you feel like it gives a justice to to showing what it was like. Um, I think because of how favourite is just
0: kind of such a subjective term. Um, I think that saying it's your favorite film to me um, doesn't necessarily seem uh, as something that I would necessarily arouse suspicion because if you, if you're saying that because it's a showcase of how powerful filmmaking can be about various social issues, um, which was what Max said when he came on the podcast about come and see, he said like, it's really, really traumatic to watch, yeah, but it's just so unbelievably powerful and shows how powerful cinema can be. And that's why it's his favorite film. So I think the same could be said there. The one thing yeah. I remember thinking throughout watching 12 Years a Slave, especially in terms of like, the amount of N-words being dropped here, there, and everywhere, is it makes you look back on Django Unchained, and it made me think, personally, it just seemed really insensitive. Um, yeah. It, it, it just, it, uh, it just it made Django Unchained, in my mind. I haven't rewatched it since to verify my hypothesis of, like, it just seems really insensitive but it's really gone down in my rankings of like Tarantino films because I used to think it was really, really good. But then you you just watch 12 Years a Slave and you're just like, this was nowhere near as sensitive as it should have been. Yeah.
1: I think I I have mixed feelings about Django, and especially I, I do definitely agree that watching 12 Years a Slave shows actually, did he approach it in the right manner? And I think... I enjoy the fact that at least Tarantino is producing a film of that period, like a Western, and not ignoring the problem of slavery and showing some of the gruesome features. But there are parts, and uh, the worst offending scene for me is the scene when Django's captured by the Australians. And it just seems so needless, and, and it's a bit discomforting having Tarantino write himself into a role just to say the N-word. and Which he's done in two
0: films now. Let's just yeah. remind ourselves. I can't remember whether he says it in Reservoir Dogs or not,
1: but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, it's really, he it doesn't add anything to the plot. It's just a bit unneedless. And I think it just goes on a bit too long. So I would have enjoyed if the film didn't have that scene and instead had more of a scene of Django talking to Schultz and having a more character development between those two guys. And I think, yeah, there is obviously some social commentary with the kind of Ku Klux Klan scene. Um, but then even then by showing, I mean, it's, I don't know, I can't remember if it's actually the KKK or basically a parody of them, but by parodying them, do you kind of, pretend that they weren't actually a very vile force that did commit hundreds of lynchings by showing them as these kind of group of idiots with potato sacks on their head that couldn't organize themselves. And I think, so you, you think sometimes he errs on the wrong side of, of dealing with the topic sensitively. Yeah, um, I suppose,
0: especially as race has just become so much bigger of an issue um, to a lot of people, kind of, well, I say more of a mainstream issue, because a lot of people just weren't really educated on, like, the four ramifications of, like, systematic injustice before. Um, Yeah, I think that these films do have to kind of be looked back at again in a more sensitive light in yeah in terms of like how sensitive are they being on the issues because um i think you know i don't think i'm making an overstatement here where i say we we've really lived through history this year with one the coronavirus and two the george floyd um murder leading to a whole new wave of black lives matter protests um and so that's kind of changed everyone's kind of perspective i suppose in the same way that the me too um stuff really change everyone's perspective uh, in terms of what's right and wrong when it comes to um, conduct and misconduct um, sexually Uh, um, and sexism in Hollywood and in industries everywhere after the Me Too movement. I think the same has been done with the Black Lives Matter movement now after George Floyd's
1: murder as well. Yeah, no, I definitely think we've kind of witnessed a, a watershed moment. I think it's entered enough of the kind of zeitgeist of the time that people will appreciate how actually these topics need to be dealt with more sensitively and perhaps a kind of white director having a cowboy flick which involves slavery might not be the best way and you may need to consult actually more of the black community and involve actually involve black directors and producers and other staff in producing these films so that it's done sensitively but in a still entertaining way. Because you don't want to never make a film on the period again, but you want to make sure that when you do make films on it, it's dealt with in a sensitive way. And that's really important. Yeah. Um, I think the worst thing that one of these films can
0: be is just um, one of these films that says racism bad and then does nothing else in terms of showing just like how deeply rooted it is in certain societies and things like that like Green Book gives a very surface level kind of analysis of everything. And you've, you watch it and you think this is adding nothing to the conversation and then it wins Best Picture and you just kind of want to die inside. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I suppose to an extent, Lincoln could possibly give, be given the same criticism. Um, Lincoln is known as notoriously boring and I'm not going to tell you that it isn't. It is notoriously boring. Um, it's just really boring. And I suppose this is a good way to transition to biopics as
1: well now because we've got the intersection. Yeah, um, I mean, the wonderful yeah. world of biopics. Definitely a big, a big part of the film industry these days, and I'm not sure if I like them as a whole.
0: Um, no, I, I'm going to disagree with you there. I think there are biopics that are like absolutely stellar. Um, Goodfellas and Raging Bull are two that I'm just going to put out there and say they're unbelievably good, but I think it's the way that they're done. I think you have to kind of ignore a lot of history to make them entertaining. Um, Steve yeah. Jobs as well, I think it's done really well. I love the three act structure of, um, it's just 40 minutes before a press conference starts where all of Steve Jobs' life issues happen which is really dumb as a premise, but the film's really yeah.
1: good. Yeah. Oh, yeah, really no, definitely. <laughs> I think that... I, I'm not saying there isn't good biopics at all. There's yeah. some fantastic biopics out there. But I think there's been this kind of general pattern. I mean, you had... You know, the Bohemian Rhapsody came out. And Eddie the Eagle had a film that came out. And then there's just so many that came out at the same time that I think they were kind of playing off the box office success. And sometimes it was a kind of... An actor, the classic example I'm going to use here is Darkest Hour, which absolutely fantastic performance by Gary Oldman. I can't get, like, he absolutely nailed the character in a way. But there's so many historical inaccuracies in the film that it doesn't present Churchill as this character that did some good, obviously, in leading Britain in the Second World War, but was deeply racist and had many colonial policies, including the Bengal famine, which led to the deaths of over 2 million people. So I just think sometimes there's some characters that are so complex as historical characters that doing them a biopic sometimes just, and you get a surface level look, isn't right. Yeah, um, I agree with you on Darkest
0: Hour. Like the performance is brilliant and he certainly deserved the Oscar. But um, as, as kind of a story it's a bit kind of so say it's um, I I described it when we talked about um, talked about it before the podcast started as a boomer film. And it very much kind of feels like a, a your dad film that um, you know, it's, it's kind of mainly to, to for people who just are fans of Churchill and, you know, know know the war and and so forth in general. I think, yeah. um, Yeah. That's, that's where I think it lies with that
1: yeah a hundred percent and so and just to interrupt again I think yeah go for it the the bit about darkest hour that really really got me annoyed was that they kind of the bit of all history they put in was when churchill goes on the underground and he talks to these people and he's like man of the people oh well, what do you think you should do what what do you think you should do and that's really not the case it didn't that never happened <laughs> and Church. It was a really good, good scene, but it never happened. happened. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> I feel like I don't mind a good scene that never happens, but this one is just so presenting Churchill as like, not, the, and not, yeah, yeah as yeah, this kind yeah. of good guy, the savior of Britain, when he was, you know, born into the establishment, was always part of the establishment. He pretty much made so many messes up throughout his career, but he still ended up with a job. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, he wasn't crucial to the war effort, but I just felt like it was a propaganda film. Looking back at it, it just like, it was very difficult to watch it and go, is this brought to you? Like, I felt like I was going to get this, this film was brought to you by the Conservative Party (laughs) (laughs) at the end of it
0: yeah uh now that you're saying that it does very much feel like a propaganda film to me as well now that you've reminded me of that and now that you've pointed out the historical inaccuracies of it as well um music biopics that you brought up i think is a really interesting place to go because i think it was pretty much after after straight out of compton really was the first like major music biopic in the last few years that came out after that we then got bohemian rhapsody we then got we then got a two-pack biopic, All Eyes on Me, and we also got um, uh, Elton John, Rocket Man, um, as as a film as well. And all of them, apart from All Eyes on Me, have been like critically acclaimed. And yeah. it seems to be something that's um, kind of well. We had an article about it on Board Film about um, uh, how music biopics are like quickly becoming this thing, which um, companies seem to be going kind of cash grab on. It seems more like they're just kind of playing off of these bands and um, their, you know, how popular they are. I think Queen especially, uh, Bahamian Rhapsody is very guilty of this because you watch it and you see how designed by committee it was, especially when you see scenes this film won Best Editing and it is the least deserving film of Best Editing ever. Like, the, there are so many shots just sprinkled in everywhere. And it's just, I remember watching a scene from it and I felt ill. I actually felt ill with all the shots that are going where you have to see every band member's face because they're the only alive ones. And even though Sasha Baron Cohen had an interesting idea about a Freddie Mercury focused film, which was... R-rated or 18-rated, 15-rated, whatever. It just had to be so designed by committee and so safe just so we could get all the Queen fans there. And so it just became very by the numbers and very, very tedious, which is such a shame.
1: And again, I feel like it painted Mercury as a good guy. And okay, when he (laughs) leaves the band, it's because he's corrupted by the influence of his lover. And I feel like, I mean, there isn't to say that he definitely did take a wrong path in the lifestyle that he he picked. But it could have painted him as also being a bit selfish, a bit more actually like some of these decisions were his own decisions. And yeah, he didn't have the right influences. And then it's like, oh, and then he comes out with a diagnosis to uh, the rest of the bandmates. And then he has that, you know, the band-aid performance and it's all kind of happy. And I think, I don't know, sometimes they could have portrayed it as, again, having him as a bit more of a, a less... Black and white character have some kind of more deeply interwoven problems with him that isn't just represented by a different character.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I I haven't actually got round to seeing Straight Out of Compton, which I've been meaning to for a very long time. I mean, I've got the I've got the the film of it on my shelf, and I I have been looking at it during this conversation occasionally. Um, uh, i've i've been a fan of nwa's work and i suppose just west coast rap in general is just very very good and its influences on its influences on uk music you know when it descends into grime and stuff as well it's all stuff that everyone should check out which i think people don't give as much credit as they should um apart from the pop rap that's kind of out these days because everyone listens to that but the actual stuff that's has something to say is usually swept under the rug by a lot of people. Um, yeah, but on, on that quite long tangent, I suppose that is it for our time today on the ball film podcast. Um, Ollie, for people who want to find you and your work, uh, where would you, where would you recommend them, them going to find you and your work?
1: Uh, so if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Ollie um, But follow the Boar News because that is where you'll get all the up-to-date news about university news and campus life and anything to do with Warwick University. Uh, so we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and rumor has it there may also be a TikTok coming soon. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for having me, James. It's been a pleasure to kind of nerd it out over some of the interesting bits of, of history and film. But yeah. It's been a great time. Thank well, you very this,
0: much. this has been a really good episode. I've, uh, um, I've really enjoyed talking about this and um, well, I, you've given me a whole bunch of films that I need to add to the watch list as well. Um, <laughs> so that's a, that's always, it's always a good thing to come out of it with, with, with more films to then watch um uh so for everyone who wants to find Boar films work um at Boar film on twitter if you want to find my personal twitter um at j underscore palm two is where you can find me Uh, i can't promise the best of content but i i think it's really weird um so ever since we did the interview with robbie lyle uh, i've got af tv following me and even though i've had four lecturers following me on twitter before i feel like the, the under, AFTV. under pressure, the AF TV follow is the one which makes me
1: regulate my content the most <laughs> 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 of, of all things. Yeah, so. yeah, I've I've got random Sky News journalists that follow me where I've <laughs> dropped one story which they covered. Nice. So I'm like, oh, <laughs> uh, nice. No, so you
0: got to drop the hot content. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I wish I had certain like, film celebrities uh, following me, but I only knew Don Robbie's neighbour as opposed to like, Adam <laughs> Sandler's neighbour instead. But, but you know what? I'm not complaining. Don Robbie was a top bloke. Um, so thank you everyone at home for listening. Thank you very much again to Ollie. Um, I'll see you next week with, oh, I think we're talking about Nolan Films next week. So that'll be a good one. See you then.